Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm with my friend here. Odie Martinez. Odie Martinez. Very good to have you with me, Odie. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great, great, great. Uh, really happy for you all to join us today. By way of introduction, let me just say this. I'm a professor of clinical psychology here locally at California Southern University. I say locally, it's a little bit of a misnomer because we're an online university, and we have students all over the all over the globe, actually. My specialty and what I focus on there is chairing doctoral dissertations. So these are students who are going to do doctorates in clinical psychology. And at least half the students whose dissertations I'm chairing are studying addiction and recovery. And so it dovetails very well with the focus of our program of looking at addiction and recovery in depth. The second thing that I do is that I, I lead groups and also do staff training uh, for beginnings treatment centers. They're one of our sponsors for uh, Ask Addiction Specialist each week. And each week that I come here, I come from leading a men's group. And so I'm always fresh with uh, uh, <laughs> experiences and uh, conversations uh, from beginnings. And so this is a, a gratitude to beginnings. I want to thank our, our producer in the studio, or actually our co-producers, one of them sitting right next to you, Odie, you've met. Austin Armstrong is manning uh, all manner of technology as we're speaking, and Austin is is a uh, stable anchor through uh, through all of all of our shows, and so I want to thank Austin for all of your work. Um, just want to uh, give a little bit of a, a, a context for today's conversation. Last week we had guests from the American Pharmacists Association, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, they presented on what pharmacists are doing across the nation in terms of educating the public, uh, particularly in light of the, the current opioid epidemic. Uh, really appreciated uh, their uh, offering time to us and bringing their expertise, and really was just inspired by what they're doing. So I want to recommend, if you missed that show, to go back and, and, and uh, uh, look it up in our archives. And while I'm on that point, let me mention that you can archive or you can view our, our archive videos uh, in a number of different places. Uh, you can go to YouTube, Ask an Addiction Specialist, and they're all housed there. You can also go to beginningstreatmentcenters.com and uh, look up podcasts, and they're all housed there as well as along with other resources. And so there's multiple uh, uh, ways to re review this. And today also you can access our show through the Facebook group, Ask an Addiction Specialist. So lots of options. Uh, you can also uh, dialogue with us today live and we have a guest who just said hello. Hello, Angela. I'm glad you're able to join us. That's wonderful. I know that Angela's traveling this weekend, so it's all the more meaningful that she's able to join us today. You're, you're uh, in the spirit of our dear friend Angela. You're welcome to share comments or questions as we go along. We'll have an exercise later today. I've shared this with Odie earlier mm -hmm. that will uh, really invite your reflections and uh, really uh, encourage you to share if you want to with us in real time. And you can do that through the chat function on the Facebook group, also in YouTube. So there's multiple ways to, to uh, communicate to us. And Austin will be the moderator. He'll let us know uh, uh, when, you, when you share something. So thank you very much for joining us. I'm very happy for you to be here. Uh, before we dive into today's topic, today's topic, the title is The Two Faces of Shame. I want to say a few words. Over the last six months or so, we've covered a lot of different topics, but they've kind of hovered and centered around a psychological perspective on addiction and recovery. And there's been a lot of conversation about the impact of shame and stigma 
on on both active addiction as well as early recovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've received a lot of feedback. There have been a lot of interactions here uh, at Ask Addiction Specialist. Also, I've been able to give a number of presentations um, to different uh, uh, university groups as well as different professional organizations such as the American Pharmacists Association. And I've been able to kind of hone this material and also make it more concise. And my mm -hmm. wish today, starting today, for the next number of weeks, is to create kind of bite-sized introductions to topics centering around this idea of unshaming. That is to say that if shame, and we'll talk more about all of this today, if shame is a problem in, in terms of it being part of what triggers addiction uh, and also triggers relapse mm -hmm. and is also central to being addressed if recovery is to be sustained and successful, I'd like to create uh, a, a series of, of uh, podcast presentations that you can review almost in terms of a home study course if you want to. So I'll be giving an exercise today. I'll actually provide a number of exercises that we won't pause long enough during our presentation for you to take 5, 10, or 15 minutes to respond. <clears throat> but you have access to this video as well as those at previous. But from these henceforth, I'll be, I'll be interspersing our presentations with exercises that on your own, that's what I mean by home study, you can review the material uh, in the videos as well as do the exercises. And what we'll do is we'll begin to build up kind of brick by brick, um, a, I think a very skillful means for dealing with uh, one of the central impediments to, to recovery, which is shame. So uh, welcome to the, the honed, streamlined <laughs> home study course of, of, uh, of uh, unshaming, sponsored by Ask Addiction Specialist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, let me mention that I want to invite you to feel free to submit questions as we go along. And, uh, and here we go, here we go. Um, so, to start with, let's just discuss right out of the starting gate that shame is understood as the most stressful human emotion. Uh, and let me just plot why that's important, is that since the number one trigger for relapse to addiction is stress, mm -hmm. uh, it's important that we find ways to manage stress. In fact, that was the topic of today's group that I led with the men at uh, Beginnings Treatment Center. These are men who by definition are all in early recovery and I wrote, came in, wrote on the board, stress management 101, here we are. And we spent the entire hour and a half group together addressing techniques and strategies for managing stress. Mm -hmm. And so to start with then, stress is the number one trigger for relapse. It's incumbent upon us, uh, for those of us that are in recovery, for those of us that work with those who are in recovery, as well as those of us who have loved ones in recovery, that we find ways to support effective management of stress. Mm -hmm. Now, if if stress uh, is the number one trigger for relapse and shame is the most stressful human emotion, then it stands to reason that we would have, it would be time well spent mm -hmm. to be spent addressing shame. Uh, by most stressful emotion, I'll say a word about that and I'm gonna give you an exercise right now. <laughs> say a word about what I mean by most stressful. The way that biologists look at stress is they don't ask Odie or Bob, are you stressed out? They'll actually do a chemical analysis of our bloodstream, of our mm -hmm. neurotransmitters, et cetera, of our hormone levels, and examine our stress just purely biologically, purely in a laboratory kind of way. Mm -hmm. There are two stress hormones that are associated uh, with, with, with studies on shame, studies on how you 
how you evaluate the uh, 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 how. Uh, how major the stress is, those two stress hormones, one we know of, most of us know of adrenaline, mm -hmm. adrenaline, and the second one is cortisol. And the studies that I'm talking about um, looked at 200 studies, in fact, of what kicks up our cortisol level, our stress hormone level the highest, and it was stress. Uh, excuse me, it was shame. It was shame that kicked it up the highest. Mm -hmm. I reminded of a client that I saw years ago, a nurse, who said something that strikes me as very true. She says, Bob, none of us can barbecue in our own adrenaline, mm -hmm. at least for very long. Yeah. And you might as well add to that cortisol and the relevance then to addiction of any kind. You know, Odie, we've talked and we will, I'm sure today, talk about substance addiction, which I bring uh, from my own experience being in recovery. And you talk about behavioral addiction, mm -hmm. which you bring from your own experience in being in recovery, which right. I really appreciate. And so, so we're bringing addiction, whether it's to uh, alcohol and other drugs or to behaviors. In both cases, many times, in fact, when I ask for a show of hands in the groups I lead, how many of you have used or relapsed to addiction owing to stress? Virtually everyone will raise their hand, right. which is back to this nurse's comment. None of us can tolerate being in a highly anxious, which is to say elevated cortisol, elevated adrenaline. Mm -hmm. We cannot tolerate to be in that state for long right. or we will self-medicate. And we can self-medicate by literally using drugs and medications or we can self-medicate by various behaviors. And we'll talk about all of this more as we go along. But that gets us in, at least in the field of why it is that we would want to talk about shame uh, today and why it seems so important or so central to recovery. Question for all of our audience. I want everybody to pause for just a second. I really would uh, advocate that you have a journal, a, 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 a folder of blank paper, uh, a spiral notebook, whatever you have, a tablet that you use online. Uh, I, I would uh, really advocate for that in this course because there will be many exercises through the next uh, uh, several weeks that we'll be utilizing uh, written material. I want to ask that all of us take a moment to just pause for a second and write down what is the definition that comes to your mind? What's the definition that is familiar to you of shame? How would you define shame? I'm going to give a few seconds for you to pause about that. And then Odie and I are going to reflect on that together. Mm -hmm. So Bob, Odie, and all the rest of us, how in your own words do you, do, do you define shame? I'll get to a more technical definition, the way that psychology defines shame, as well as the way that these research studies that I just discussed define shame. But before I do that, let's have a conversation, Odie. So okay. when you think of shame, <laughs> um, uh, what comes to your mind? What's the definition that comes to your mind? The definition for me that comes to mind, and I've shared uh, before in previous podcasts, yeah. is just uh, wanting to, to hide and... Uh, go inside my shell like yeah. like a turtle you know yeah. and um, somebody this is just an example somebody saying something to me in a negative light and me feeling like um, that's who I am mm. you know not not necessarily oh that's just their opinion but that's who I am yeah because yeah. somebody that I care about um, put that label yeah that's, that's good. Yeah. 
my definition. Yeah, yeah. My guess is your definition resonates for a lot of our viewers today. <clears throat> and each one of us will have a slightly different way of putting it, a slightly different shading, but I think that right. Odie's cut right to the heart of it there. Is that it? One thing that uh, it's, it's interesting today in today's group, we were talking about uh, stress, and uh, I I said, how do you all think of stress? And one of the members of the group said, I I don't think of stress. I don't think of stress as something you think about. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a great response, and mm -hmm. I think it's implied in what you said, yeah. is that we can talk about shame, we can define it, we can use words to define it. But look at what you started with by saying. It makes me want to crawl in my hole. It makes me want to crawl into my shell like a turtle. I'd like a turtle. I feel like that. That's really close to it. Is that, is that shame is more of an embodied feeling mm. that we have, and it's a response that it's undeniable. Right. Yeah. But it's not so easily put into words. I think you did it's a good not, job putting yeah. it into words. But it's <laughs> like it's almost like it's it's more like a verb than an adjective. It's like this is making what it makes me want to do. Yeah. Before it wasn't really easy to to word it that way for me. Before, you know, I was asked, so how does it feel? And I'd just be like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know how it feels. I don't yeah. know. I can't tell you. Yeah. You know. you know, we did an exercise today in the group that I think is relevant here to what you just said, Odie. Mm -hmm. and, and we did it in a different way than I've done before. As I introduced a mindfulness exercise at the beginning of this group. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, it was an hour and a half group. And I did a mindfulness exercise that we, we kind of, we broke it into little bits and we stretched it across much of the group. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I would just, uh, basically something as simple as just focusing on our breath. And then I would do that for two or three minutes with the group, asking for, for individuals to do that. And then I'd say, how's it going? Mm -hmm. And we talk about that for a few minutes. Right. Some people uh, had more uh, facility with that than others, but all of us found that challenging. Mm -hmm. Something as, as simple as being able to focus my attention for just a few moments on my breath. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? Right. But it's really kind of difficult, really kind of difficult. And as we went along the way, what we did is we kind of expanded it. Like I said, we stretched it across the group. But we expanded it to include beginning to notice um, more subtle sensations than just mm -hmm. our breath. So, for example, we talked about what would it be like to notice what it's like to sit in a chair and actually feel the weight of your body in a chair. Mm. Now, my guess is that you and I aren't sitting here thinking, oh, this is exactly what my body feels like sitting in the chair. Right. It tends to be background for us rather than foreground. Mm. But this exercise was meant to bring it to the foreground. And we continued on with that to include things like, what would it be like to, what would it be like to notice, Bob and Odie, what your temperature is in your body, mm. across your body? And so we did that, kind of just like locating, noticing that it's not the same across my body. There's certain parts of my body that are cooler in right. a given moment than others. Um, and it got even subtler than that. We got into, can you locate, is it possible to locate your heartbeat in your chest without putting your hand on your chest? Mm. Who does that? Well, <laughs> if you have too much time on your hands, that's what we do. That's what we do today. <laughs> But what came of it, uh, in fact, it was, it was the next exercise that we did. I said, can you focus your attention just on your, your digestive tract right now, your stomach area, and notice, are you full? Mm -hmm. Are you hungry? Maybe you have indigestion, et cetera. Just focus some attention there. And what was interesting, the conversation that came of that, and it came right after we did that exercise, is that a few different people in the group noted that, you know, I'm noticing stuff I never paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And in fact... Uh, I'm stressed out right now, and I notice mm. it in my gut area, and I rarely am aware of it. Mm. And so then one individual shared, you know, 
I get stressed out at work, and when I come home from work, it actually takes me a couple of hours to realize I've been stressed out at work. Mm. In other words, stress becomes background. It's almost like invisible. Yeah. Well, I think the same thing with shame, is that mm. these things that we're talking about uh, are not necessarily obvious to, right. to, to us. And I think especially as men, that we're, we're uh, less inclined to pay attention to feelings sometimes in terms of the way that we're raised than, mm -hmm. than women are, and especially vulnerable feelings like shame. Mm -hmm. The last mm -hmm. thing I want to share with you is that right now I want to crawl into a shell. Right. That seems like a very unmanly thing to do. <laughs> and, I, 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 and so I, I know being raised as a guy and you as a guy that we've been mm -hmm. socialized to be tough and not, not vulnerable, and so yeah. especially to be able to notice feelings, much less to name them, mm -hmm. is, is difficult to do. Yeah. yeah. So, so we start off by locating shame as something that's slippery, that's tricky to get a hold of, and that it's more of a feeling than a, a concept. Mm -hmm. I want to shift and talk about shame from a conceptual perspective, but we'll tie it back into behavior. In fact, we'll do further exercises. The next slide suggests this, is that the studies that have been done on high cortisol break down shame into two categories. One is it represents a threat to social acceptance, mm -hmm. very much tied into what Odie shared. Right. Odie said, I, wanna, I, I feel like I'm being criticized for something I am, and I want to crawl into a hole. Mm -hmm. That would be a threat to, am, am I going to lose? Are you going to reject me? Mm -hmm. Are you going to judge me? Yeah. And so that definitely is a significant part of shame, is the threat to, to uh, you liking me, you accepting me, right. you not judging me. And then there's a second part, there's a second threat, and that threat is to self-esteem. And what I want to talk about in just a moment is how related those two things are. But when I say a threat to self-esteem, that would be, if I use Odie's example, that would be somebody making a judgment about you as who you are, mm -hmm. and that you go away from that doubting yourself. Mm. That'd be an example of... Uh, it's gotten under your skin. That's the term that we use where it's gotten under your skin. Now you're reflecting on it, and now you're not feeling so good about yourself. You're mm -hmm. doubting your own, your own uh, worth, let's say. And that, that would be the kind of the, the inner version of what happened in the outer. Do you have a thought? Yeah, I was thinking that's pretty much thinking to yourself. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like um, maybe going away from a situation where something like that happened and okay. then saying to yourself, no, that can't be right, that can't be right, they're wrong, and then slowly, like you said, thinking about it and saying, well, this happened before, so maybe they have a point. Yeah. Is that what you're Yeah, that's about? good. Yeah. No, that's really good. Okay. That's really good. So you might even go away from a situation and say, no, that's their mistake. They don't really see me. They're just, that's a, just like a distorted view. Right. But given time to ruminate on it, mm -hmm. and like you said, to reflect on the facts of the situation, it's possible that we'd, we'd be won over. Yeah. to that position, mm -hmm. which would be a position of where, where now it's no longer that person or those individuals judging me. Mm. It's me judging me. Right. I'm just a person who, whatever comes after that. Mm. And in the context of shame, it's never complimentary. Right. So what we're talking about, and it's really based in your definition that you just shared, Odie, is that shame is uh, very centrally a social emotion. Mm -hmm. It's very much affected in relationship to others. And a, a way for us to understand how it's a social emotion uh, is to talk about evolutionary psychology for a minute. Evolutionary psychologists uh, look, at, look at psychological 
Um, All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, such as our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors, the and they look at them in terms right. of one criterion, one criterion only. Here, as always, today, from a again, completely biological perspective, and we're certainly a lot so more than just biological beings. Hey. We are that, and we but we're also psychological, and social, and spiritual beings. And today, for but you, just strictly, if we just take all that away and look at ourselves only from a psychological, excuse me, only from a biological perspective. Our central motivation is to get our genes into the next generation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, how, that's how an evolutionary biologist talks about what motivates your behavior or my behavior. Mm -hmm. I realize it's not very poetic. It's not very inspiring. <laughs> it's certainly not very romantic. <laughs> but it's, it's a way to, it's a, it, it provides a lens or a grid through which to interpret human behavior from one perspective. And there's value in that, I believe, as long as we keep it in the context of other possible motivations too. Um, I want to mention while I'm talking about evolutionary psychology that uh, uh, one of the key figures in terms of summarizing this is Robert Wright, just like the Wright brothers with the W. And uh, I'm currently taking a course online from Robert Wright uh, at Princeton, and, mm -hmm. and uh, he's, he's one of those who's done a lot of work on this. His book that came out that is the best introduction that I know of to, to evolutionary psychology is, is simply called The Moral Animal. And what he gets out there is this kind of strange thing is that you and I are both animals from a biological perspective, <laughs> but we also have moralities unless we're just less than animals. Mm -hmm. And it's, it brings together this idea of being animals and being moral at the same time. And uh, I think Robert Wright does a fantastic job of unpacking mm -hmm. that. The current course I'm taking and his most recent book examines mindfulness and meditation animal uh, practices, which we talk a lot about here uh, related to uh, addiction and recovery. He talks about those from an evolutionary perspective in a way that's really quite insightful and revealing. I want to pause for just a second because I see out of the corner of my eye that somebody's <laughs> got a comment on the screen. And it's right behind a pillar, so I'm going to go back and forth until I can read it, okay? Okay, here we go. We're good. Examine it helps to understand how shame is part of a deeper drive for acceptance, which we talk a lot about even here, though it is so detrimental. To, uh, That's a very recovery. astute comment. About those from an to understand how shame is part of a really deeper drive for acceptance, even though it is so detrimental. It's funny that you would say that. I'll continue in just a second. Is that from an evolutionary perspective, in fact, we're going to talk more about that, shame serves great value from an evolutionary perspective, as long as we don't get stuck in it, and we so oftentimes do get stuck in it, enough so that in the context context of our podcast series here, we've been using the term shame in a very specific way, talking about it as being toxic. Even though so we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. Funny that you let me continue with the comments. It also helps to hear the biology of shame tied to stress and then as a trigger for relapse. Good. I'm glad for that evolutionary perspective. So it really helps to understand. This is very practical to me to understand that my recovery will be a direct reflection of my learning how to successfully manage stress. Even and I begin to line up what's stressful. I'll oftentimes ask the group, so do you know, what do you find stressful? Do you find more doubt this and that? What do you find stressful? And then as a trigger for relapse. I'm glad for that evolutionary perspective. First, it really helps to understand that being late to my recovery or really everywhere. And I share that with you. I grew up with a fastidiously timely mother. So very aware of time. 
And so to be late, uh, or to have other people be late, can be very stressful. And so in the context of recovery, it sounds it's no more impractical than that. How am I going to manage this time thing? I've got to figure out some way to manage that. And I'll tell you, I'll just I'll self-dispose for myself, and you're welcome to, is that I, I have to manage this. And so what I'll oftentimes do is that I'll leave early for events, for example, so that I don't have to be stressed out by being late, because being late is one of those stressors. And if I'm really serious about reducing stress in my life, I look for any area that I can possibly, if any place I have wiggle room, I'll apply myself to it. And I'll tell you, I'll just, I'll tell you a stressor that came up to me, came up for me, comes up often as we're asking groups, came up for me, and I can still remember I was in fifth grade. I was 11, and I still remember this. I didn't have the word stress in my vocabulary. In fact, I didn't have the word for this experience in my vocabulary, except I knew that it sucked. And it was, I, I can remember playing one day uh, with my, my cars and my army men and so on out in the front yard, and I guess I did it too long because it went into a place that felt really, really bad, and I thought, what is this feeling? And I don't know how I came to discover what the words for that were. In fact, it's too long ago. But I do know that that feeling was bored of Except that is that I typically wasn't bored that much as a kid. I'm typically not that bored as an adult. But when I do get bored, I don't like how it feels. And people will say, Dr. Bob, I thought of, I thought of something that was stressful for me. Boredom, but boredom's not stressful. And I go, heck yes, it's stressful. Heck yes. If we could, if we could, if we could do an analysis that little Bobby's cortisol levels at age 11 out playing out in front of the house getting bored I guess as they began to spice I really did not like that feeling and so there's a whole range of things from being being late to boredom to interpersonal oftentimes I'll say what's stressful and people, somebody will just say relationships and because we're talking about uh, psychology in an evolutionary sense and we're talking about a social emotion I want to talk about one of the ways that relationships can be stressful, which is around this dynamic of social acceptance and not. We'll say more about that. So there was another comment on that boredom. I didn't quite finish that reading. Oftentimes, it's stressful. People there say relationships. I love the comments. I kind of meander today. So it helps to understand how shame is part of a deeper drive for acceptance. I want to talk about one of the ways that relationships can be stressful. It is part of a deeper drive. It also helps to hear say biology of shame tied to stress and then as a trigger for relapse. Next, shame usually feels so personal and isolated. It's very interesting observation because I said that shame is a social emotion. I kind of meander today. But it oftentimes, what you say? It helps with the shame. It oftentimes is isolated. So it's paradoxical. This so-called social emotion, which is something about being judged by others, makes me want to isolate. You can see the logic of that. It doesn't feel so social at those moments. It actually feels shame So, yeah, it is it, it, it is very painful, very personal, very private oftentimes, and can also be very isolated. So hearing these things makes it less personal and part of a human experience. This person says, thank you. Well, thank you for what you shared. I think one of the things, I'll come to this in the second to the last slide today, is that when Odie and I talk, and I, you know I appreciate what you share here, Odie, when you and I talk, one of the reasons I wanted to redo this material is we're doing it together. Yeah. Because I've done this material alone, and I did it earlier on a year ago, 
and it was it was in isolation. <laughs> and, and you and I share now, and that's part of the value for me of going back through this material. Absolutely. And it really is to get this out, to share it. And there's a way that you share, Odie, openly and transparently that is disarming. Mm. And I really appreciate it because I'd like all of us to feel disarmed with this. Yeah. And secrecy only feeds it. Mm. It only feeds and nourishes Absolutely. shame. And so if we can if we can find a way Basically, what we want to do is starve shame, if mm. I can say that. Yeah. I heard this image recently. I hope it's not too noxious. It was like you have to starve the stray cat, mm. you know, and, that, and they were talking about addiction. <laughs> is It's like a stray cat that wants to come and pester you. Right. But if you don't keep feeding it, eventually at least it will go away if it doesn't starve. So yeah. I want to be humane here. Do not want the Humane <laughs> Society coming. But at least we want the stray cat, especially if it has rabies. And I think that addiction has rabies. We want it to get oh, far yeah. away. And, and definitely shame has rabies. That okay. re- reminds me of uh, a workshop I went to for um what was it for actually i think like internet uh addiction mm-hmm. along with uh the ending was with porn addiction as mm-hmm. well and the speaker said something very interesting uh after his presentation when i went up to talk to him and uh he that he said something similar to what you just said is that right the street cat not the street cat he <laughs> said uh how do you say? It? He said, "Starve the beast." He said, yeah. "Starve the beast. Don't yeah. feed it." Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Which, I know from a psychological yeah. perspective that that what was it? Don't feed it. Starve the Starve, beast. Don't and don't feed it. Yeah. Don't feed it. Is that we talk uh, in learning theory and psychology? Mm-hmm. We talk about if you want to extinguish a response. Mm-hmm. Don't feed it. Mm. The term that we use is don't don't reinforce it. Right. But it's really this idea of don't feed it. And mm. so, um, you know, I, I sat today in the group today, and there was a gentleman to the left who had 30 days of sobriety. And I looked at him, and I said, that is so wonderful. I said, every day that you starve the beast, I didn't use that analogy, but I could have, every day of sobriety is a day that the brain recovers and gets stronger. Mm-hmm. And he nodded and agreed. He's really beginning to feel changes in his life. And it's just a matter of starving the beast, not mm-hmm. feeding it. And each day that he doesn't feed the addiction is a day uh, in the direction of increased, uh, actually he was talking about this, increased joy in his life. Yeah. He, he's, he said he was amazed to experience joy without being altered chemically. Mm. And so, yeah. so that's the track that we're on. So, okay, so <laughs> we're going to take an evolutionary psychological perspective for just a moment, and then we're going to have an exercise. How would a threat to social acceptance, from an evolutionary perspective, why would that be associated with such so much stress? Why would it matter to me if you accept me? Why would it matter to you if I accept you? Looking at it from this idea of an evolutionary perspective or a biological perspective, which is to say, natural selection favors you're passing your genes on to the next mm-hmm. generation if you... Uh, stay connected socially. Why would that? Why would that be the case? Do you have any thoughts about that? Why? Why are we social beings? Why does it matter if you accept me or not? Well, th- th- through the lens of uh, through the lens through yeah. that lens, it, that's really the determining factor of whether you um, proceed into the next generation. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to put on. Put on a mask, pretty much, or not put on a mask, but be yourself for the most part. But I think it's uh, it's very difficult to um, 
to be yourself, you know, for the social acceptance part of it. You're actually prefiguring an image that I have at the very end of our presentation mm -hmm. that shows a woman pulling a mask off. Hmm. And, and I think there's truth in what you're saying is that, is that I, I, I think of it this way around addiction. And yeah. It ties back to what you were saying earlier around shame is that people will say, how can somebody be so evil as to do what they do when they're addicted? Hmm. And my own view is that people, first of all, do evil things when they're addicted, right. and they do them as a function of what addiction does to the brain. Hmm. And I'm coming from a psychological perspective for sure, right. but I have no doubt about that. And so the idea that I would take off any kind of social concern for you, any kind of moral scruples, I'm going to say take off that mask yeah. so you can see the real me, and people will say, well, it doesn't, and I've heard people say this, doesn't addiction show the real Odie? Mm -hmm. or the real Bob, and I would say this, no, actually what it shows is it shows what happens if you take away Odie's frontal cortex, yeah. or if you take away <laughs> Bob's frontal cortex. So what you have is you have midbrain, mm. which is a very primitive part of the brain that's really governed by fight, flight, or freeze, mm. and it will take whatever it wants. It's completely egocentric. Right. I don't think of that as being the real Odie. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's being a real Bob, right. because you have all these other parts. And so I think what you were talking about is mask right now. We have multiple layers, and we'll look at this image later. If right. you take off one of these layers, like addiction does to us, you'll mm -hmm. end up with somebody that's a distortion of who you are, mm -hmm. and you know that personally, and I certainly know it as a function of addiction. Yeah. But I would hesitate to say that's the real Odie or the real Bob. And so we live in a social context, which is the social contract, right. is you're not going to do that stuff. Right. I'm going to be able to count on you, be able to trust you, be able to rely on you. Mm -hmm. Among other things, there's strength in numbers. If Odie and Bob hang together on the prairie, we have a better chance of surviving than if we're <laughs> separated. Correct. So from just purely a biological perspective, it'd be do well, do well for us to accept each other. That right. is to be friends, yeah. to get along. It would do, exactly. We'd be, be good for us to do that. And if you treat me poorly or I treat you poorly, we jeopardize that. And in the process, we jeopardize both of our survivals. Mm -hmm. And so this threat to social acceptance is tied right into the deepest survival. And you said it right is that it's not only our survival right now, mm -hmm. it's our sur the survival of our genes to the next generation. Mm -hmm. and, and this even ties into uh, sex and reproduction, right. is that if we're not able to be accepted by others, including a partner that would help us create a new child, mm -hmm. passing our genes to the next generation, then we're in big trouble, mm -hmm. big trouble. So if, that's, if the threat to social acceptance is one part of this, and we're looking at that from a biological perspective, let's look at a threat to our self-esteem, which is, as we're saying, is kind of the second uh, column or the second point of, of shame here. Mm -hmm. how, would, how would a threat to self-esteem be related to our biological survival? Hmm. Any thoughts about that? Who cares if you feel good about yourself, Odie or Bob? I care. <laughs> yeah, you care. And why do we care? Why do you think we care? Why does it matter from a biological perspective? Why might it matter that, that we, that we uh, feel effective in our lives? Mm. Why would that matter? Well, I think the first thing that came to mind with that is just, uh, I thought first and foremost of, well, you know, if I'm not feeling, if I'm not feeling confident or um, high self-esteem in myself, mm -hmm then I'm not going to be able to attract yeah. uh, either a mate yeah. or really be able to and even um, be able to provide for myself if I'm talking like career, we're yeah. talking in a yeah. career-wise sense, yeah. you know, be able to provide 
food, shelter, clothing, and whatnot. I think you're right on the right track. In fact, the way I look at this is that we're talking about two sides of the coin, and so it's Mm -hmm. really hard to separate them, is that we talked a minute ago about threats to social acceptance. If you don't accept me, then I'm alone, and that makes me Mm -hmm. more at risk for survival. And now we're talking about threats to self-esteem. If I don't feel good, if I don't feel effective in my own life, Mm -hmm. are you going to want to hang out with me? No. Probably not. <laughs> and am I going to be attracted to a partner with whom I might reproduce to the next generation? Probably not Probably either. Not. Yeah. And so it gets very hard to, to say which, is, which comes first because mm-hmm. they're really both related. In fact, the way that I think about this is that you can get trapped in a vicious cycle here. Mm-hmm. This image, that's, there's an image right here, Austin, of being trapped in a vicious cycle around shame is that it doesn't matter whether it starts off that you... If we go back to your example of the turtle in the shell, Mm -hmm. if you reject me, then I'll have that turtle in the shell experience. Mm. And then if I go away and, like you said, begin to believe what you said about me, Mm. that is, begin to doubt myself, now my self-esteem is lowered. Mm -hmm. And when I come back, when the turtle, if the turtle comes back and says, will you be my friend? Well, now I'm a turtle that doubts itself, Mm. probably less attractive to you. In fact, more likely to be judged by you because now you're calling me a turtle. (laughs) <laughs> and so I go away, and you, that's the vicious cycle, is, right. is that a loss to self-esteem breeds uh, a threat to, self, uh, to social acceptance. Mm. A threat to social acceptance breeds um. a loss to self-esteem, and so there it goes, and yeah. so we're caught in that cycle. What I want to do now is I want to do an exercise, and I want to encourage our viewers to join us um, in this, and you're welcome to journal. And if you're viewing this after the fact, if you're viewing this in its archived form, then you can just stop the recording and spend a few minutes with this. Odie and I are going to uh, uh, share, God willing, as we go through this exercise. (laughs) But I want to give you time to do that and uh, uh, encourage you after, if you're watching live today, after our show today, to just uh, uh, reflect uh, a bit uh, in your own journaling. It'll, it'll help deepen the material. In fact, I'm going to finish up today to talk about how and why it's valuable for us to write things down and talk mm. the way that we're talking. So the journal exercise is this. I'm going to guide us through it. Uh, the first piece we're going to look at is a threat to social acceptance. And so what I want to ask us to do is to think of a time, Odie, I'll think of a time as well, a time where that's been imperiled, where my social connection is, uh, is, is, has been jeopardized. Hmm. And so to locate that to begin with, to think of an example that you'd be willing to share, I, I, uh, I've been thinking about this, and there's one I'm willing to share. Do you have something? Mm-hmm. Okay, what I want to do is I'll talk through it, and this will be a model for what you can do on your own at home, okay? Uh, it's very simple, I just want to look at what happened, summarize what happened, and, uh, and, uh, and then how did it feel? We're gonna look at those two things. What happened and how did it feel? Hmm. And so if you can just summarize briefly what happened and how it felt to you, that'll give us a start. And then we're gonna take it deeper, okay? Okay, I'll try to yeah, summarize yeah, it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was sixth, sixth or fifth grade. There was this girl in my class that I liked and I told somebody that I wasn't really friends with, a, a guy, but really wasn't friends with I shared with him, I opened up to him and said, hey, I'm thinking about asking this girl to, and there was this thing that was going on like a week, in a week, it, it was like, a, I think it was called the hold down where people go down to like the gym area, uh, they turn on music and you just dance or just 
hang out, whatever. And so I told him, I was like, I'm thinking about asking this girl to the hoedown. Mm -hmm. And so she just happened, while I was telling him this, she just happened to be passing out papers to everybody. And she was right next to us. And he just thought it was a good idea to be like, hey, he wants to ask you out to the hoedown. <laughs> and so immediately I got red and I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect of her reaction. She, she just went, ah, and then she walked away. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was, yeah. and yeah, who of us uh, doesn't have a version of that experience? <laughs> oh man. So oh, man, the way that that felt was, um, embar embarrassing. Yeah. Very embarrassing. Yeah. So that feeling. And, and it, you, you said it's just like you turn red. Yeah. It's a whole embodied response, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah. Bad friend, bad friend, <laughs> bad friend. Uh, uh, well, let's let's do this. Let's just stay with it for just a second. Okay. Let me ask you if we if, if we take it one step further, if we take it a little bit deeper, mm -hmm. how did it affect you? Not only in terms of how you felt, because you, you shared that with us, but how you felt about yourself, and maybe in the aftermath of it. Mm. Uh, I'd just be curious, any, any memories you have of this? I know it's a long time ago, but it also feels fresh, so. Yeah. Um, you know, to take it deeper, like you mentioned at the time, uh, I think I had just gotten back. I, I've gone back into school because before then, I was actually out of school for like a year because of what happened. Um, physically to me I had an operation on my hip mm -hmm. so I was out of school for like a year so and then um, I had gained weight as well so like all this stuff just started mm -hmm. coming like after that and thinking about it even now uh, just how it wasn't just that situation that affected me it was uh, throughout that time okay. you know okay. of just feeling like well it's funny now, but just thinking like, well, of course she said she had that reaction because I wasn't good looking at the time was the thought. I got, I, my mind went ahead for a second, so I want to ask you, wh did you have the operation before or after? You just said it, but I missed it because my was my Before. Mind, you had the operation yeah. before. Okay. And you'd also put on some weight, I think you said, mm -hmm. before. Okay. So it's all kind of, this is the way that it goes. I love the yeah. way you describe this. This is yeah. the way it goes. All these things kind of conspire together mm -hmm. to affect how you feel about yourself. Yeah. And if there's a word or two that you could summarize for how you felt about yourself during that, let's say that period of time, anything come to mind? Um, I'd have to say probably uh, unattractive, I think, okay. would be the best yeah. to explain it. Just yeah. because, you know, it yeah. was the attraction that I felt for yeah, her yeah. and just hoping yeah. hopefully she's attracted to me yeah. but and then just yeah. having that reaction it's like yeah. well maybe yeah. I'm not yeah. attractive even your choice of that word unattractive mm -hmm. we think about what we've talked about that shame is a social emotion mm -hmm. it's tied into your accepting me and my accepting you in this case that girl accepting you mm -hmm. that girl finding you attractive think about that that serves even how old were you uh, you say fifth or sixth grade maybe Sometimes yeah probably like 10 11 okay, okay. something like that so even at that age we're hardwired for that stuff to matter and so to feel unattractive mm -hmm. to feel like that i may not be accepted by this girl in this case for you mm -hmm. is is to, to to go right to the heart of that and it does affect how we feel about ourselves mm -hmm. and so that term unattractive has a social connotation, unless as a turtle connotation, mm -hmm. and a sense of wanting to crawl <laughs> under the turtle shell for sure. Right. Thank you. You're welcome.
and it happened at a relatively young age for you. Mm -hmm. I want to share an example briefly that happened at a much older age, and I think that there's a tie-in between the two experiences. Mm -hmm. I got addicted to alcohol and then other drugs in midlife, which mm -hmm. is, I've shared before her openly, right. is statistically unusual. Uh, I mentioned uh, here uh, in our podcast that I work a lot with young men and women mm -hmm. uh, who are in early recovery from addiction. That's more typically the course. Oftentimes, I think if there's a modal experience of those I work with, many of them started using when they were 12 or 13 or 14, not mm -hmm. much older than you were right. at this age, mm -hmm. begin using. And, and by the time that they reach latter adolescence and early uh, adulthood, they've got an active addiction going on. So that's more typical. So my story is atypical. And because it's more recent, I can, I can access it also with, with a fair bit of ease, is that for right. me to, to come to the place where I, I uh, was clear with myself that I was addicted and that mm -hmm. I needed help was a hugely shameful experience mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. And I've been thinking about it uh, in preparation for today's podcast. It's ironic is it was shameful in terms of social acceptance from mm -hmm. two directions. <laughs> the first direction is more obvious, is that for Bob to come out with being addicted and needing help and needing to get into recovery means that if you're not addicted, you might judge me. Mm. It's like, oh, that Bob, he does stuff. Uh, don't know about him, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But there's another side that may be less obvious is that not only might I be judged by those that weren't using or addicted, mm -hmm. I was also judged by those that were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these would be my so-called uh, drinking buddies, et cetera, right. is that, is that they, they just lost their drinking buddy. Right. They just lost their friend. And so they're not standing up and going, hey, that's great, Bob, that you've acknowledged that you've got an addiction problem. And honestly, also to really own this, is that there was a sense of failure because I had friends that were able to so-called party mm -hmm. that didn't seem like it got the best of them, and I got swamped by addiction. Mm -hmm. And so there was a way that I failed. I failed as a partier. Right. And and then for people that don't party, I failed because I ever did party, yeah. <laughs> and I partied wow. to extremes. So, yeah. so th uh, for me, there was very much, uh, from all angles, yeah. kind of across the board, a threat to social acceptance, which is not to say that everybody rejected me, mm -hmm. but I fear that everybody right. did. And then this gets back to what you shared earlier in terms of the turtle. I actually did get judged by uh, and rejected, and I experienced significant loss as a function of my addiction. But it wasn't across the board, but it didn't matter because I got to where I thought everybody was judging me that way, and then the worst of it is I started judging myself that mm -hmm. way. Do you remember how you talked about this? Yeah. Is that mm -hmm. now that you buy it, uh, that what people say that this is who Odie is, right. I got to, this is who Bob is, yeah. and everybody could leave, and I would judge myself that mm -hmm. way. This is who I am to myself. Yeah. That was the worst of it for me. And mm -hmm. so it moved from, from addiction to feeling embarrassed or ashamed of mm -hmm. that in public to feeling judgment, then to an internalizing that. And it led then, this is where you get this full circle, this kind of this vicious cycle. It led to loss of social acceptance, to feeling awful about myself. Mm -hmm. And then, and the truth is it was reinforcing because yeah. now I was depressed. Mm. I was depressed and I was in early recovery. So I was experiencing those early symptoms of recovery, which are not pleasant for anybody. Right. And didn't make me fun to be around, made me unattractive, to mm. use your word, yeah. deeply unattractive. And so this story that I'm sharing, is in that way not unrelated to yours. Yeah, in fact, there's a way, there's a way. A way you were 10 or 11 or 12. You're not so young. I mean, it sounds crazy to say this. You're not so young that if you'd been exposed to, to pot, let's say, if you'd, been, mm -hmm. if you'd had friends that could turn you on to smoking weed, mm -hmm. uh, and I've had clients who had family members that said, here, just have a little shot of this, this alcohol. Wow. If you could have had that and experienced relief from this feeling, mm -hmm. 
that could have been one of those pivot points for you in your life. Wow. Uh, and yeah. so the fact is, is that these unpleasant feelings, if we can find a way to self-medicate, mm -hmm. Virtually at any age, we may do it. Mm -hmm. Certainly by the time that we're in adolescence and we're much more vulnerable to peer pressure, right. to people saying, here, here, smoke this, right. drink this, then uh, then we can be well on our way to this, this self-medicating that starts off benignly. I feel so much better. I don't feel so bad about the girl <laughs> saying whatever she did because now I'm a little bit buzzed. But then when that becomes like habitual, mm. in fact, anytime I'm not buzzed, I don't mm -hmm. feel good about myself. Anytime I'm not altered, I don't feel attractive. That's, yeah. that's one of the places that addiction can sink in its talents. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I had a question that came to mind while you were speaking because um, you brought up self-medicating. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I guess the question would be, is it possible to self-medicate oneself with um, what's the best way to say this? Self-negative, I guess, negative talk. Mm -hmm. Self-talk, you know. Mm -hmm. Negative self-talk, mm -hmm. I guess, would be the best mm -hmm. way. Is, that, is there a way that somebody that can get use that to self-medicate for a I certain situation? I think so. Let me see if this helps to answer it. Yeah. Um, I'll come in an indirect way. Is that it doesn't look like this, but some people use rage as a way mm -hmm. to... Um, to self-regulate, to keep okay. things on a balance, is that how I feel good is I'm, I'm angry at you and I'm yelling at you now, and it actually mm. makes me feel superior to you because after all, I'm putting you down. I'm yelling louder than you, etc. Uh, and yeah. so people can use a negative emotion to feel mm. better about themselves. And to your point, which is feeling bad about myself, the first thought that comes to my mind, and some of our viewers may have other thoughts and you may have other thoughts here mm -hmm. too, is that... There can be kind of a strange or paradoxical comfort in what's familiar. Mm. So if I'm used to being unattractive, I can actually find some peace of mind in it kind of being the status quo, business as usual. Mm -hmm. And the way, that can, the way that reveals itself is if you come up to me and say, Bob, you're not unattractive, you are attractive, that can actually feel unpleasant. And it reveals then that I'm actually more at home with feeling unattractive. And so if you name me as attractive, that can bring up all kinds of possible um, discomfort for me. For example, well, you find I'm attractive now, but what if you saw me this morning? Uh, okay. <laughs> or what if I lost that? Uh, or maybe you don't care anything else about me, but, but that if I'm attractive, you know, you can go down a list of things mm -hmm. that could make a compliment actually be risky business mm -hmm. and I can find security right. in feeling bad about myself mm -hmm. and there's a, I've heard people talk about this way sometimes our negative self-talk actually can nurture us mm -hmm. can nurture us it can mm. it can nourish and nurture us so is that along the idea of what you're asking yeah about? that's actually right on the dot so thank you uh, another question that came to mind um, how about because I've had relatives uh, that used to do this so after a long day of work, mm -hmm. they'd come home, mm -hmm. and their way of relaxing mm -hmm. would be to mm -hmm. uh, crack open a can mm -hmm. of, of their favorite beer. Right, right, right. Would that be a way of self-medicating as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I people have different opinions. I do not demonize <laughs> drinking your favorite beer. I don't. Okay. I, and 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 there'd be plenty of people, including in the recovery field, that that might do that. 
Um, for me, in fact, it brings up the question, then what really what constitutes a problem? Mm -hmm. And you know from our conversations that right. I, I actually prefer using the word. It's not even used these days as much in psychiatry and psychology. I prefer using the word addiction mm -hmm. because I think if I pop open the beer mm -hmm. and it's a way to relax, how is that different than me watching a TV show or, in my case, picking up a pair of drumsticks and playing? Uh, okay. Probably not. Probably, right. I don't assume that it is. The problem enters in is that when I cannot stop that, mm. which is to say when I become enslaved to it, and as we've talked about here, enslavement is just the, that's the root word of addiction. Addictus in Latin means slave. Mm -hmm. And so I can become, a, I can become enslaved to drum, drumming. I can be a, become enslaved to TV. I can become enslaved to popping open a can of beer. And so I don't assume that it's negative. And so if we use self-medicate, <laughs> I to, I'll tell you a distinction I prefer to that because okay. I like to use I prefer using the term self-medicate to use it in the context of addiction. But I get where you're going with it. Right. I prefer to think about this in terms of one author uh, uh, referred to as a positive addiction. Mm -hmm. There are things I really mm -hmm. like doing. They make me feel good. I'm, right. he, I'm hesitant. For example, people will say I'm addicted to chocolate. If you <laughs> like chocolate and you eat chocolate within reason, I can understand why you'd say that. And I'd probably say that I'd, we'd laugh together. Right. But I don't technically believe you're addicted to chocolate. Now, right. if you are going through one bar of chocolate after another and can't stop, and you're mm -hmm. doing that at, at the expense of your health and regulating your emotions because you're sugar, et cetera, like that, then we can talk about addiction. Then we can talk about self-medication. But I, I don't assume that uh, uh, in terms of general discourse right. that that would involve self-medication. Gotcha. It, does, it does bring up a memory for me, and I'll share it. Years ago, I had a, a student at another university I was working at who wanted to write a paper on the recreational use of, of heroin. Mm -hmm. And you, and you, like, the look in your face. You, I was like, like, that's this. a thing? <laughs> yeah, that is a thing. That is a thing. And, and she was talking about the non-addictive recreational use of, of heroin. Uh, she referred in her paper to chipping was the idea, where you just take a little heroin mm -hmm. just to kind of, like, take the edge off. And uh, that would be a more controversial stance, yeah, okay? okay. <laughs> and and I, I, I could go more technically into this just to suggest that the difference between chocolate and heroin is major. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay, pretty. Can we just say that? <laughs> In terms of the way that it affects one's brain, <laughs> let's not even talk about dopamine levels. Austin over here is going, I don't know, I'm just weighing it like that. <laughs> So let's put it this way. If my normal dopamine level is at a one, which means right now just being alert and being in this conversation, mm -hmm. which we're enjoying, we're at a one. Right. Uh, uh, the research that's been done, in fact, has been up, done up the way in UCLA, is that something as powerful as sexual orgasm doubles that mm -hmm. to a level of two. And you can think, you can reference your own experience. That's a very powerful, that's a very powerful doubling of that. And they're looking just strictly at the dopamine release in the brain, which is associated with the experience of reward or pleasure, is that <clears throat> that uh, chocolate's probably somewhere in the zone of 1.5. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm being very generous to chocolate, okay? Okay. You introduce heroin into it, mm. it's 10 times the amount of dopamine yeah. as our resting level. There's no comparison between chocolate mm. um, uh, in, that, in that case mm. and heroin. And so the idea of let's let's have a little chunk of chocolate. Mm -hmm. Let's have a little chunk of heroin would be extremely hard to defend, it seems like to me, from a yeah. just pure brain science Absolutely. kind of perspective. Okay. Yeah, so good questions. I love your questions. There's, you. a, there's a question or a comment that's come in. Uh, this person's agreeing with Odie. Negative self-talk is less painful to me 
than someone else judging me. Very good observation. Thank you. That's a, that's a piece that I missed. I really like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember as a boy, I can remember as a boy, I would preempt other people judging me by doing that myself first. Mm -hmm. I can still remember that was a a conscious strategy for me. And I did it with my guy friends. Mm -hmm. It's not something I announced, because it would not be something you would announce, but I can remember that I would be willing to kind of fall on my own sword, so to speak, Mm -hmm. so as to avoid you criticizing me. I would do that myself. And this is on the continuum with that, where that's another way that I can be in charge of negative self-talk, and, and, and as I'm saying, in my own case, I can also possibly preempt your criticism mm-hmm. by doing that. We used to have this saying on the playground, you don't hit somebody who's down. Mm-hmm. There's a few people you don't hit. You don't hit somebody who's down. We used to say, you don't hit somebody with glasses. That was one of the rules. Mm-hmm. And you don't hit a girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, in my case, I took it as, you don't hit somebody who's down. If I've already, if I've already kind of showed my vulnerability by saying, I've, you know, criticizing myself, mm-hmm. then it's, it's a violation of code for you to come after me. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys, yeah. guys, guys. We're going to wrap up for, for today. <laughs> and I, I promised this image, and it's tied into something that Odie shared earlier. The image is we've been talking about the two faces of shame, threats to social acceptance on the one hand, threats to self-esteem, and how they're inseparable from one another. And this image reminds me of the image you talked about, mm-hmm. is that there's who we are, and then, and then we take that mask off, that mm-hmm. there's two faces of shame. Right. And that, that there's the public side of shame, right. the face gets red. Yeah. There's the private side, and we've already talked about it. Shame is a very isolating emotion. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a social emotion, it's so painful that we want to isolate. And your image of the turtle, I felt like, was, was really important. Let me wrap up by saying this. Uh, th- there is hope. And you may want, well, how is there hope in hearing these awful stories that Bob and and Odie are sharing. And I want to say this just by way of of closing today, is that one of the things I feel very strongly about is that hope starts by being able to name our experience. And so that the way that this last individual was able to name the fact that negative self-talk is actually less onerous than having somebody criticize this person, that's naming it. And by our ability to give words to something, we're halfway to a new place. And Mm -hmm. I'll say what I mean by that in terms of the brain, is that shame is really uh, rooted in the emotional center of the brain, which is located between our ears. And it's very much connected to a fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Mm -hmm. And those kind of survival-based reactions are really, they they originate in the center of our brain, what's referred to as the Mm midbrain. And for example, shame is oftentimes understood as a freeze reaction. Mm -hmm. The turtle. Mm It just freezes. It just freezes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a different reaction than going after somebody aggressively with anger or running away from somebody with fright. It's a third reaction. It really deserves its own, and it does. It's mm-hmm. a freeze reaction. Mm-hmm. And so if we understand shame as being a midbrain phenomenon, anything that we can do to bring conscious awareness and language to talking about this experience. Remember how we started? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to talk about shame or how mm-hmm. to define it. Yeah. And yet, look at what we've done. You've remembered examples of it. We've <laughs> talked about it. We've unpacked it. We've defined it. We've analyzed it, sliced it this way and that way and so on. That doesn't do away with shame, but what that does is that gives us tools to yeah. deal with shame. And so if we can move shame from being a midbrain phenomenon to being available to the executive 
function of the brain, which is located primarily in the frontal cortex, then, we, then, we're, then we're doing something important. And it's perfectly analogous to what happens in addiction, in active addiction. Mm -hmm. If you're addicted to behaviors, if you're addicted to substances, yeah. by definition, addiction is, is, is what's referred to as a hypofrontal phenomenon. Hypofrontality is this. Hypo means underneath. Mm -hmm. Hypodermis is underneath your skin. Hypofrontal means underneath your frontal lobes. Mm -hmm. And so what happens in active addiction, if you hook up my brain and your brain in any kind of addictive behavior, they will look very similar. doesn't matter what the behavior is and how mm -hmm. they'll look similar. Is the frontal cortex, which is the executive part of our brain that makes decisions, uh, weighs consequences, mm -hmm. acts morally, cares mm -hmm. about others, all of that stuff is a function of the frontal cortex, and in active addiction, the frontal cortex goes dark. Mm. If you do a brain scan, it's dark. What's lit up is the center of the brain, which are the addiction, the pleasure centers, the reward circuitry of the brain is all in the, in the midbrain. And so I think not only does our talking about this uh, involve a major step forward in terms of addressing shame, mm -hmm. it's also exactly what needs to be uh, happen if we're going to really successfully recover. Mm -hmm. So you have to find words for our experiences and then tie our behaviors into, into those, those clear concepts. And so I do feel like there's hope. And even though we've mm -hmm. talked about some painful experiences mm -hmm. today for sure, it begins to give us a shared vocabulary. And that's really my wish for this series moving forward. Odie and I will be sharing each week commenting together on various aspects of addiction and mm -hmm. recovery, talking about psychological phenomena, centering around shame as a metaphor for the most stressful uh, experiences that we have that are intimately related to addiction. And as we begin to refine and uh, expand that vocabulary, it gives us strength. One author puts it this way, is that good ideas are psychoactive. They actually change our lives, good thinking. I think of shame as being paralyzing. It paralyzes our thoughts. When you're, when you're in that turtle place, you're like a deer in the headlights, not yep. to mix metaphors, but we are. <laughs> turtle from, in the headlights. You know, there's, yeah, there's nothing worse <laughs> than being a turtle in the headlights, and we all know that experience. So anything that we can do to move back into gaining some control over that, and I think good information, it can actually free us up from the paralyzed turtle in the headlights, and yeah. so that's where we're aiming. In that spirit, next week's uh, podcast will be addressing uh, two other concepts, and we'll be comparing them together and going deep into them. We'll be looking at shame versus guilt next week, and mm -hmm. clear definitions here will be very helpful to us as we continue to expand forward. We'll have a guest in, the, in, the, in, in, in our session next week. Occasionally we bring in guests, and I'll be dialoguing with Bruce, who'll be joining us next week. So I hope you'll come back then, okay? Uh, uh, if you have any final questions, feel free to write me. Uh, Austin's going to bring up my my uh, uh, email, uh, excuse me, my uh, website address, mm -hmm. and you can uh, email me from that website address, just drbobweathers.com. You can also reach out to Austin directly through the Facebook group or through YouTube. If you have any questions for Odie and me, feel free to write those. I want to thank you for your participation today. I uh, wish you safe travels through this week all, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.